You're listening to Trending with Timory, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics. National speaker Timory Millington has been a passionate advocate for life as long as she can remember, helping Gen X through Z answer the call to true feminism and authentic manhood. Timory holds a master's degree in biblical theology, and she covers this week's hottest stories from a Catholic worldview. You're listening to Trending with Timory. So good to be with all of you. We have a lot coming up today. We'll be talking about abortion and just the unfortunately incredibly effective marketing and outreach to minors by Teen Vogue, really promoting a very provocative sexual identity and teaching minors how to access abortion. So we'll be talking about that and some of their marketing. We'll also be diving into what does it look like to develop in the way you love and receive love from adolescence to adulthood? Because the reality is a lot of people have things, whether they tried to d- jump into loving in an adult t- kind of way too soon or they were forced into it or maybe they delayed developing in the way they love people. We're going to break it down, get into some theology and anthropology of the human person. So stay tuned. But for those who are familiar with one of our favorite guests here on Trending and much beloved by you, I hear from you everywhere I go that you love Father Tim Grumbach. Oh, I love you all too very much. No, it's always such a joy to be here to, um, especially what we're looking at today is that we're made by love for love and we get to explore that in, you know, in a world that it really doesn't look like that sometimes. And so we'll see, you know, the way that Teen Vogue is reaching out through Snapchat and going to the places where the teens are. Maybe we can learn a lesson, right? Okay. And you know, I have to say, I cannot stand and Snapchat. I think part of the reason is because of how it was created uh, really as a means to like quick porn that's expirable, mm. but also just the obsession with images. We're going to be talking later on this week on the show about silence, Father and Tim and I, uh, just the profound growth that can take place in that. And Cardinal Sarah has some comments about how these images can prevent that silence from occurring in our soul and even our space around us. Yeah, one of the most powerful voices in the church right now about our need for silence. It may sound a little bit paradoxical to talk so much about silence, but he has so much to say about it. And every time I hear him uh, say anything about it, write about it, I'm like, I want to enter into that silence. In fact, anytime Cardinal Seurat speaks, I want him to not stop Mm. speaking. And I think that that comes from a profound prayer life. He is speaking so much truth and profound thoughts that penetrate not only to our most uh, deepest desires, but also to the challenges that we face in today's world. Yeah, he's certainly a man who's suffering for and with the church. And we don't get to see a lot about that because he does it quietly and, and silently and uh, really the way that you know the saints have before. So we want to get into this drama behind Google. An employee of Google released on really a discussion board and a memo to all of her colleagues at Google that there is discrimination against pregnant women taking place at Google. Essentially, this woman who went by, quote, motherboard, really put together this long letter uh, sharing that she herself, working at Google, high level, incredible achiever, had great evaluation ended up standing up for a 
fellow employee when she saw one of her managers was kind of discriminating against the pregnant woman. And lo and behold, as time went on, we'll call her Mother Bore, the author of this letter, ended up experiencing the same type of discrimination, had to change teams, and still found from the upper level that not just management, but even human resources would not adequately look into obvious documentation of a violation of just respecting someone who's pregnant. And I think we'll be seeing a lot more of this over the weeks to come, the months to come, now that the voices are starting to be heard. And we've already seen it over the last couple of months that these larger businesses, especially the tech businesses, are, are looking at pregnancy as kind of an issue that's getting in the way of their productivity. Exactly. I mean, who missed the letter just a couple months ago as these different abortion um, laws are being implemented to either prevent or favor abortion that I think hundreds of CEOs had signed this letter and they quote unquote said that these are anti-abortion laws, as they call them, these pro-life laws, saving babies' lives and caring for women's souls and bodies, that they're, quote, bad for business, is what the CEO said. So, of course, Google is implementing from the top down that if you're pregnant, your progress within the workforce is ineffective um, and your value has really depleted in our eyes. And we'll also be seeing during this time as businesses like Google and other these tech businesses are kind of seeing the, the worth of their employees go down because of pregnancy is that maybe this is a gift for us to be reminded of the gift of motherhood and you know the, the intensity that goes into a mother dedicating her life, you know, her, her very body to her children. And you know, what, what is this going to do for business and the expectations that we have placed on women as mothers, uh, as expectant mothers, and as mothers. That's Father Tim McGrumbach of St. Augustine Parish in the Los Angeles Diocese. You're listening to Trending with Timory. I'm going to be a little blunt here, and, you know, I think it's the elephant in the room, to be honest, any time we talk about uh, any type of pregnancy discrimination. The truth of the matter is, is that when a woman's pregnant, some women have really severe symptoms. Mm -hmm. Some women, ha women have hardly any symptoms at all. But the problem is, is that our society society has placed the value of a woman on her productivity in the workforce and not in being productive and growing and developing another human being inside of her. So there's a lack of tolerance, should I say, for women whose bodies are changing. And yes, that means that they can be emotional. Yes, that means that they can be exhausted. I was just talking to a family member recently who she said for, you know, most of her pregnancy and for quite a while after just going up and down the stairs, she was laboring to breathe do we not realize that, yeah, that's actually going to weigh on performance at work? And it's going to weigh on our understanding of women as unique and unrepeatable persons that, you know, trying to fit these mothers into the workforce as just another cog in the wheel. It's going to tell us as the, the rest, you know, men and women that we are just fitting into this, you know, this wheel, this machine and not recognizing, you know, the, the love for which and by which we have been made that can be expressed in such a unique way in motherhood. And so to take that away and to not recognize that each and every mother, not just in general, but each and every mother is a unique and unrepeatable person who, yeah, and we're not saying women can't work or mothers can't work, but we're saying that we, we can't take away their motherhood for the sake of work. And that's the problem. The corporate world wants to say that men and women are the same. So just like you're saying, Father Tim, like this, you've hit the nail on the head here that there are differences between men and women. And that means that when a woman is pregnant, 
there's a potential that her workflow is going to change and that she may not be able to be in the workforce as long during that part of the time. I mean, this is what a motherboard who shares her testimony with this experience at Google shares. Like she ended up having to go on bed rest. She ended up having to leave work sooner. And she met a tremendous amount of discrimination. Even her manager at one point saying, well, you know, I was recommended bed rest, but I mean, I didn't do it. And I delivered my ch- child via C-section and I worked it up until the day I, had that C-section. Hmm. Well, that's true for some people, but it's not true for all women. All pregnancies are different. Yeah, and it, that becomes our thing of pride, doesn't it? Is, yes. You know, trying to say, well, I did it this way, and so you must as well. And it's taking the individuality away from a person. And we'll see it in some of the issues we're looking at later in this episode is just even the language that's used. They don't even want to refer to persons as women. Oh, it'll gosh. be persons with uteruses or <laughs> it'll be, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or pregnant persons rather than mothers and, and women. And they are very powerfully using the language against you know a reality. Well, and this is exactly part of the problem of essentially what Leanna Wen in part left over because she wouldn't use the trans language that was mm. being used um, at Planned Parenthood. She wouldn't refer to pregnant persons. She insisted on still referring to women as women. Think mm. of that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think at the heart of this issue too is we have to look at and respecting those differences of male and female in the workforce. We also have to respect a perspective that the church offers. Mm. And the church in its history has really reinforced, we've been talking about it a lot here on Trending, that parents are the predominant educators, the primary educators of their children. And in this fast-paced world, that's lost sight of. And when we're overly focused on a two-income home and too many extracurricular activities, what happens is we violate what the church teaches in really bringing the mother as the heart of the home present to be with her children. And I think this is a challenge that women face when they're forced or even pressured that their whole identity is in the workforce, that then they meet this discrimination because they're told that's where their only value is. Mm-hmm. And losing the ability for the parents to become those primary educators. Uh, who is going to fill that gap? We have Teen Vogue, we have Snapchat, we have all these other different uh, media outlets become the educators. Right. And then you know, even parents expect others to be teaching their children. They, they will be sending their children off to school uh, to be educated and say, well, that's not my job. And you know, the Catholic Church has the beautiful tra- tradition that the parents are the primary educators of the children. It does not mean you need to know everything as parents and be able to teach the children everything, but your primi- primary responsibility is to find the people who can help you. And to you know, maybe we as a church have not done that as well as we could have, uh, reminding the parents of their role as educators and, and giving them somewhere to come to to learn and to teach and to know that you have this tremendous responsibility and obligation because of who you are as parents and that it's not just the church that has given you it, but it's God who's given you this tremendous responsibility. You know, when I look at that responsibility and even just looking at the church, the church and her tradition has always emphasized this. I think a little less so over the last 60 years, but it's still there ingrained in the teaching. And there's recently, you and I actually went through, I think last year, a letter uh, by Bishop Olmstead called Complete My Joy. And he really actually emphasizes calling parents, because this is to parents and husbands and wives, calling them back into that mission of the home and really encouraging encouraging them, if you can live on that one income, bring the mother into the home more and make the necessary sacrifices that actually separate you from the material realm to be more present 
physically, emotionally, spiritually to your children, but also to your God. And Bishop Olmsted's background, being so much with the theology of the body from John Paul II, he is coming from a place of the dignity of men and women as men and women and the gifts that God has given to us as unique and unrepeatable individuals uh, born born for love and by love. Timory will be right back. Send her a tweet at Timory. That's T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where morality and culture meet, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics. Coming up on the show, we'll be talking about a Vietnam vet who is actually on the path of sanctity he's on the path to being recognized as a saint through the catholic church he received a medal of honor a bronze star and a purple heart so stay tuned for his story in the miracle that was recently approved father tim grumbach of saint augustine parish is with me father tim here in the state of california we are battling over the last two years some legislation that violates the sanctity of human life and really the development of women in their sexuality on college campuses. RU486 would be made accessible to all UC and CSU schools here in the state of California, so all the public campuses, through Senate Bill 24. So there's another vote coming up at the end of the month. So I'm challenging all of you. You keep hearing me mention this. Please head over to my social media at Timmery, that's T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E, and download the letter. And you can either mail it or at this point email it in, the address is there on the letter, uh, a copy of you having signed the letter asking these legislators not to pass this major expansion of abortion. We're seeing numbers are seeing an additional 500 abortions per month. Yeah, and we as Catholics can defend life by this way. You know, prayer is the first and primary means by which we do that. But also, we have a role to play by uh, sending in what we really believe and having a voice with our legislators. You know, I was just with uh, about a thousand parishioners and with the Archbishop Gomez just last night for a dinner talking about uh, just kind of where we're moving forward as an archdiocese in Los Angeles. And he mentioned, look at what we just did with the uh, SB 360 uh, concerning the confessional seal and mandated reporting uh, here in California that we gathered 150,000 letters from throughout the state of California, Catholics writing to the legislators saying, you know, not not only is this, you know, poorly put together, but it's unjust. And we had an effect. We we had an impact. And so we can do this. We just have to remember that each one of our voices does matter. Yeah. Write a letter. Feel that urgency. Just like you don't want the confessional being violated. We are giving you ways to also contact the persons who will be voting on this at the end of the month. It's so close to the end of all the votes it needs. So it's time to lean in. Even if you've called as it's passed through the other committees, we still need you to call now. You know, during Vox Vitae, uh, we had over 100 teenagers present and for the first time they were calling their legislators during one of the votes on the RU486 um, abortion expansion here in California and they said it took a minute they felt empowered they were so excited and they said it was also so easy so don't be afraid teenagers were incredibly effective voices in making this happen and one key piece of information just remember about the RU486 abortion pill I've posted a link to a documentary on it but we have to remember things that the chemical abortion RU486 
argue 46 is actually more damaging than the surgical abortion. You can learn more about that. But one interesting fact is that the RU486 abortion pill actually suppresses your immune system when you take it. And so this is part of the reason why such serious infections can set in after having gone through this very, very, I'll be blunt, bloody and drawn out chemical abortion that ends life and really destroys the spirit and in many ways the body of the woman who takes it. Father Tim Grumbach again is here in studio with us. And I want to get your thoughts. I was sent this by a dear friend, Michelle, pictures of Teen Vogue advertising or marketing on Snapchat to minors, how they can access an abortion, even if their parents are in favor of it. Mm -hmm. You saw the images. What were your thoughts and what stood out to you? My thoughts were they have created something that makes sense that can make sense to you know those who don't know the the dignity of life the the preciousness of life from the moment of conception that they they point out look there are some situations in which uh, parents may act violently or act unjustly towards their children if they you know if their teenagers have be, have become pregnant and so if you want to stay safe then you need access to abortion and they've created something that to a young mind says yes i want to stay safe and they've generalized, you know, from perhaps what is a, a vast minority of cases and said, look, because of these vast minority of cases, everybody should have access to this and you should have access to this information. And so, you know, we were just talking about how the parents are the primary educators of the children. This is what Teen Vogue is doing to undermine that is to say, oh, don't trust your parents, but trust us. And they're even stating, you know, a lot of states vast majority have parental notification laws or parental consent laws of, of at least one, maybe even two parents. And so they're actually explaining to the kids in a series of images on Snapchat how to get a judicial bypass, how to go that through that procedure so that they can still access that abortion. They said it takes a little bit of time, but it's doable. And so they're telling them where to go. And they're even telling them if you need money for your abortion, you can go to the abortion fund. Now, this abortion fund is really being promoted nationwide here since all of the passing of some of the pro-life laws saying, you know what, some places are losing funding for abortion aka Planned Parenthood, all the funding that they're losing, even though it quote unquote doesn't go to abortion mm, funds. Yeah. Well, why are they creating these abortion fund, funds then? So they're telling them how to get it for free and how to go around their parents, which kind of hits at this whole argument of a bodily autonomy that, you know, is this really about you and just you making a decision and a private decision? The question is, when does life begin? And when does that, that other person become a person who is, has the dignity of human life, the dignity given yeah. to them by God. And so it seems pretty clear that the language throughout here is even if this person does believe in God, does believe in some kind of higher power that they, they have a very strange relationship with this higher power or this God as to not really even ask the question about when does life begin? When does it have dignity? And so right when the questions begin to get good, they stop asking the questions. And they change the conversation mm -hmm. quickly. The conversation changes from a political, political or a rights conversation to suddenly, well, one in four women by the age of 45 will have had an abortion. So they're just trying to say, just like in the sex ed programs that, well, STDs are common, no big deal. You know, everyone deals with them. They're saying the same thing about abortion. Everyone has an abortion. It's common, no big deal. That's their way to get around the 
physical, emotional, psychological impact that abortion and STDs have on a person. Yeah, it's just a dressed up version of everyone else is doing it, so it should be okay. It doesn't matter what the consequences are. Right, right, right. And another thing that really struck me about this was trying to personalize it in the sense of, oh, your parents, they just have these abstract beliefs. But if this happened to their child, you know, they would most certainly change their beliefs. Pointing towards the, you know, as an, a belief being abstract, as if that almost uh, makes it not a real belief. As if, well, okay, no one in my family has been murdered. Yeah. Hypothetically, you know, actually, in my family, in my extended family, there was somebody who was murdered, but that's a, another story. So we do have some personal experience with this. But one could say, oh, no one was murdered in your family. And so you have no voice in this. Your beliefs about the wrongness of murder is just abstract. And so we could look at any serious moral issue and say, oh, just because you do not have personal experience in that, you do not have a say, and your abstract beliefs can be proven wrong as soon as you have some personal experience with it. Well, and think how stupid this thinking is, though, of them, because here in the same advertisement, you mentioned it earlier, they're not thinking right. They're talking about persons with uteruses. Mm -hmm. And so if I say I identify as a person with a uterus, do I suddenly have a say? Because the reality is, is that women often say that a man can't have a say in the whole abortion issue. And the whole thing, they are crazy. And this is how far it goes. I was reading an article uh, by U.S. Representative Pramila J. Paul, and she talks about how I believe in India she ended up having a child the child was born prematurely by the way she's raised that child who is now graduated from high school um, as genderless non-binary neither male or female that's how far her ideology goes but she keeps making the argument that abortion is personal it's a personal opinion and that doesn't matter what your stance is on it we should all advocate for public access. And this is what she stands by because, you know, whether you're male or female's personal, whether you have an abortion's personal, whether you beat your spouse's personal, beat your children, I mean, their thinking doesn't match up. Mm -hmm. We Catholics understand ourselves as the body of Christ. Weep with those who weep, uh, rejoice with those who rejoice. And it goes even deeper than those surface experiences of, you know, rejoicing and weeping. But it goes down to the very reality of who we are. And so we're not isolated people. We were created for relationship. And not only were we created for relationship, but you know, what we do with our body matters. We have the solemnity of the assumption coming up later this week. And what a beautiful celebration of the human body that is. And we believe that Mary was assumed body and soul into heaven, which means our body means something to our salvation. And for a society that can't speak of the body with such dignity and such beauty, but can only refer to this absolute bodily autonomy, almost as a, a religion and idolatry of itself. Mm -hmm. you know, we have made ourselves less than a body by glorifying our body as, as an absolute autonomy. This um, privacy yeah. argument, ain't it, it goes completely against everything of the Christian tradition. I mean, this is a war on Christianity that values the creating of human life and the loving act of a man and a woman and the gift of family, you know, the small church, it's this violation, you know, we're talking about love. Why are we having to talk about developing in the way we love between adolescence and adulthood? It's because 
things such as abortion, things such as this discrimination against the idea of pregnancy. These are issues that are preventing people from learning to love when they're forced as a teenager to go through that abortion procedure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's, it's taking away the reality of family. You know, again, right? The the questions they're not asking the questions right as soon as they start getting good. Like, what what is the dignity of this human person? What is the dignity of the human family? And you know, without any language of God, without this relationship of God, of asking God, okay, when does life begin? What do you want me to do with this life? What are you asking of me in this suffering? When she was writing this article, she pointed out this was not an easy decision for me. And we're not saying, oh, it must have been an easy decision. You must be a murderer. No, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that we know it's a difficult decision, but you know, God is calling us to a cross. And what happens when a woman says, you know what, I'm choosing to keep my child, and you can too. That changes a person's life, and that's the model others need to hear. You can listen to more of Trending via the podcast on iTunes or the iHeartRadio app, where you can share your favorite episodes. You're listening to Trending with Timory. Great to be back with all of you. Coming up in the show, we'll be talking about developing between adolescence and adulthood and how many people's development of how they love and receive love has been thwarted due to forced into an earlier development too soon or maybe an intentional delaying or maybe coddling of trying to develop in the way you care for people. Right now, however, I father Tim Grumbach in studio with us. He is the associate pastor at St. Augustine's in Los Angeles. He's also helping minister in the Los Angeles Diocese to the young Catholic professionals and a number of other projects. He says yes to so many formative events. You find him all over, not just Los Angeles Diocese, but San Bernardino, Orange County. I'm still waiting for you to come to San Diego, Father. Uh, well, let's get an invitation. You know, the, the, the yes, I love saying yes, you know, and uh, I, I don't know if uh, I've been able to form that other word physically with my mouth ever in my life. So no, no, it's something like that. I, I'm working on it. So we'll pray for rest for you. Oh, Father. yes, of course. Yes, yes. But you have to cooperate in those opportunities. It's <laughs> right, like the whole thing. Yeah. You pray for humility. Well, God's going to give you a a piece of humble pie. Yeah, he'll give you the grace to endure it too. (laughs) Yes. So I was really ecstatic to hear this story of a recent saint. Well, right now he's under the label of servant of God. For those who don't know, when a person is looked at as a candidate for sainthood, there is a miracle that has to be approved. Uh, People can contest whether or not this person should be made a saint. There is forensic documentation and scientific research that enters in. There's a lot to the process of becoming a saint. That's what was so miraculous in a sense about both the GP um, Pope St. John Paul the Great and even Mother Teresa, which took quite a bit longer than GP mm-hmm. two become in becoming a saint so quickly is because this process moved along so quickly, even with all of the different levels of documentation of the faithful and even secular involvement. So this new saint is a V Vietnam vet Vincent Capadano. He was born or died in 1967 in his really his youth still after having served in Vietnam. Yeah, and it's it'll be hard to say that this man is not a saint. We look at the way that he lived and especially at the way that he died. And we see a man of heroic virtue, a, a man who uh, lived and died for others. And this is what's so exciting about the saints. We don't need to even put it more eloquently than that. These are men and women who are so unique, each and every one of them. And I I love 
what C.S. Lewis had to say about the difference between the, the tyrants and the saints in this world. He said, you know, how, how monotonously boring are all the tyrants and the conquerors of this world, but how gloriously different are all the saints. And so each story of the saints is a different way that God has made his glory known in the world through humility, through even suffering and death. And we see that in, in Father Vincent, you know, he's servant of God, and which means the next step will be for him to be named venerable and then blessed and then saint. And it looks like we're getting some miracles and we'll be on the way to that soon. In fact, the miracle that was approved was from a couple years ago, a woman who was suffering with MS. She learned of, of Father Vincent because he was a priest as well. Um, and she ended up learning of him and his story. She started praying for him down in Florida. She had MS and an MRI was done showing that the lesions on her brain were completely gone. A total miracle that ended up being approved by the Vatican. But let's learn a little bit more about Father Vincent. In fact, Father Vincent was a child of 10 who grew up in Staten Island. He is a recipient of the Medal of Honor, Bronze Star, and the, and the Purple Heart. He was a lieutenant in the Navy Chaplain Corps, and he was the first in the 1st Marine Division during Vietnam. His story goes like this. In 1967, there was Operation Swift taking place, and the troops were surrounded by over 2,500 Vietnamese soldiers. As they were taking major hits, they were waiting for their second round of a backup troops. He was wounded both in the face and in the hand. Despite that, he moved on in hostile fire as he was anointing people, giving them the last rites, hearing their confessions, and also comforting them. He was just a number of feet away, actually, from a gunman who was hostily firing at them when he took 27 shots in his back and died to hear a story about a soon-to-be saint like that a, a chaplain with the military who went right into battle like that you know only the words of saint paul can come to mind i've been crucified with christ you know saint paul was a man who already understood himself to be dead and raised from the dead and so he wasn't afraid to go anywhere and so to look at father vincent and, and to hear that you know here's a man who's already been wounded in the face and in the hand but he is going to find the dying in the middle of battle and kneeling down with them, spending their last moments with them, and to have been shot and, and killed in, in such a, a grisly manner, but knowing that there's no greater title he's going to be receiving, no greater honor than he's going to be receiving, because he received all those honors posthumously. There's no greater honor he's going to be receiving than to be called a saint. Mm. And he proved that by going into a situation like that, not throwing his life away, but letting it be a sacrifice for those men who were dying on the field. And if we believe what we really believe about the sacraments, these men needed the sacraments at those moments. And that's where he went. He went because Jesus was going to go there. Jesus was already there. That's Father Tim Grumbach. You're listening to Trending with Tim Wright. Father Tim, what stands out to me about the story of Father Vincent Capadano and even the miracle of the woman who was healed of after suffering from MS is that so many of us are going to hear this story. And I even, you know, almost didn't even read it. I saw the headline, thought, oh, that's cool, and moved past it. And then I paused and said, wait a second. A miracle was just approved. A woman was healed, and a man is about to become a saint. How obsessed with stories have we become that it's blasé, no big deal, when a miracle really actually does happen, and the church really does view this hero as a saint? Mm -hmm. Well, I'd love to see 
um, you know, friends of mine who are involved in some charismatic healing ministries that sometimes when they get to witness a miracle by praying over someone, sometimes they're just like, well, yeah, I knew God was going to do that. And I'm like, wait a second, did you just see what I saw? Wasn't that amazing? And they said, well, yeah, I mean, it's amazing because that's who God is. And so it's almost like, I'm not really surprised by the surprises of the Holy Spirit anymore. And it's beautiful to see when somebody has that kind of confidence in God. And so as a church, we can see the miracles in that way, but we, we still want to, you know, exclaim God's glory and, and his providence that he is still working miracles through the saints. And especially the saints who have gone before us, who are, you know, we believe, you know, in the throne room of heaven with God and interceding for us and not just cheerleaders on the sideline, but have actually, you know, they're getting their hands dirty and still reaching into our lives. And to see somebody who, you know, gave his life in this way, still cares about us. That's what I love about the saints is that they're not up there in heaven and, you know, escaping from the world and safe and leaving us alone, but they're still getting their hands dirty. They still care about us. You know, some of the, uh, the visions of our lady coming to speak to us, sometimes she's crying. You know, mm. we, we were told, you know, in heaven, there's not going to be any more tears, but we still have a mother who, who comes to be with us and sees the sorrow that we're in and feels it. So I really believe the saints are, are not just, up there and safe and far away from us, they're still getting their hands dirty, reaching into our lives, interceding for us. And you know, who knows, maybe sacrificing in some way to be able to still reach into this world. What a beautiful thing for the saints to continue to do. Well, I think about the necessity for awe. You talked about how, you know, sometimes we either get so used to it, like, yeah, this is what God does. This is what he should do. And so we appreciate it, but we move on. But I think a lot of us just kind of ignore it and don't really ponder it. And I think about the daily mass readings this week. And I was pondering this after mass about how God was talking about how we have to be like little children. Well, what are little children like? They're in awe. There's this unreservedness. They have questions about the world. Things amaze them. Well, these miracles, if we're called to be like little children, we should be in awe over this miracle that our heavenly father Mm -hmm. did through father Vincent, through this woman with MS and even every day on the sacrament or in the sacrament of the altar and the Eucharist and the confessional. Yeah. And, and to kind of put a a little worldly spin on it, lighthearted spin on it is I was talking with a friend of mine just yesterday who had been to Disneyland recently and took a friend with her who had never been to Disneyland. And she said, now I'm never going to Disneyland with anyone who's ever been there before because I want to go with people who've never been before. Like they're always excited about this. They're like four-year-olds running around and (laughs) experiencing for the first time. And so, you know, if only we had this experience of the miracles of God, of even the liturgy is, you know, ever ancient, ever new, is that every time we experience the ancient tradition of the church, if we experienced it as something new and invited people to experience it for the first time and shared in their joy to see these miracles, to see the sacraments, to see the experience of the body of Christ almost for the first time. We need this reminder and the saints, saints give us that reminder. You know, and I want to run down this Disneyland comparison a little bit more because anyone who's a Disneyland goer and I get it. Some people don't get it. Some people are like, what are you a kid? Do you have, you know, five-year-olds? Why are you as an adult going alone or maybe with like other adults to Disneyland? 
And, you know, here's the reality. Maybe that's you. Maybe you can't experience the joy and the awe and the incredibleness. Maybe you're just on the outside going, are you kidding? Yet when you actually go, when you're willing to just be joyful, to be open to, you know, the joy of life or even open to really pondering this miracle of this saint, all of a sudden your heart becomes a little more soft to not being so hardened as we are in today's world. Yeah, how sad it'll be should we make it to heaven and realize we've protected our hearts our whole lives and then we almost won't recognize anything in heaven because we've almost never known you know, the, the joy of that childlike faith. We've only seen people maybe by uh, their shortcomings and their weaknesses and all the things that will be done away with before we get to heaven. Yeah, I mean, isn't that mm. the plague of purgatory mm. that if we've hardened our hearts so much and have lived a righteous life, if we're able to make it even to purgatory, that how much work might actually need to be done still to soften the heart? Because otherwise we couldn't comprehend the awe and love of God in heaven. So what a beautiful thing it is to um, let our hearts break open and to stop trying to protect them in the the caskets of our own selfishness, as C.S. Lewis would say, because they'll change, they'll transform, they'll become harder, um, or we could let them break open and they'll transform and become more like God's heart. Timory will be right back. Send her a tweet at Timory. That's T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where morality and culture meet, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics. Don't miss an episode. Would you like to share this with someone? Head over to radiotrending.com. Again, that's radiotrending.com. You can listen to all the episodes of Trending and hit that subscribe button so that you can receive them directly to your phone with that crisp audio sound. No interruptions as you drive through tunnels or under bridges. You know, I'm such a millennial. I will actually, even if I've got a decent connection, I will change to my cell phone to the app for that station because I like the crispness. Oh yeah, you know our, our cell phones are going to do everything for us. You know, maybe they'll implant a, them in us soon, and we won't. Even... <laughs> I'll pass. I'll pass. Remember those glasses where they said like you would have everything: your calendar, your phone, oh and my the glasses. Gosh, yeah, yeah. Did you do it? Yeah. Well, the Avengers is promising us something like that soon, right? Yeah, I think, uh, <laughs> uh, Tony Stark and his uh, his Edith glasses. I I don't know if you've seen the Spider Man movie yet. So. No, I'm okay. behind. Oh, I'm terrible. It doesn't behind. spoil anything. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're talking today. That's Father Tim Grumbach, by the way. For those who are just joining us. He is a priest in the Los Angeles Diocese, serving many ministries, including that of the parish of St. Augustine. So we wanted to talk about, as we're talking about abortion and this impact on struggling to recognize parents as the primary educators, all of these different issues, we're seeing a theme right now in the culture. And that is that people are using this phrase, adult when necessary or oh I have to adult this weekend as if they have to suddenly live up to some responsibility but only do it for 24 hours or five hours and then they can go back to their perpetual adolescence yeah ah, adulting you know <laughs> yes yes I, I don't adult for fun right yeah stuff like that mm-hmm. I was trying to explain this to an adult recently mm-hmm. uh, a boomer essentially and they could not grasp the idea and after maybe like five times probably with my poor explanation diving into it they went 
oh, that's really a thing, like immaturity, essentially. Yes. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah that's, that's, that's what we mean. But we're recognizing it, right? Yeah, yeah. There's this recognition. So there's this uh, Humanum Review where we see a series of articles actually specifically touching on this whole issue of developing from adolescence to adulthood. And one of the articles that they wrote was having to do with this development of how we love and how it changes. The author is Jose Granados, and he does an awesome job uh, pulling in St. John Paul the Great and some others and how he shares that for some people, they're not able to love as an adult today because they didn't take the steps necessary. Maybe they were prematurely forced into something or maybe they tried to grasp for more of an adult kind of love before they were ready. Or maybe on the opposite side, they delayed it. They didn't take the steps. They were too dependent on someone. Maybe they were coddled. They chose to be coddled. And so there's this premature hindrance that took place that although someone believes, okay, you know, I really feel like, you know, love is something I can do. It might cause them to be stuck in sexual interaction that it is not entering into the fullness of commitment and self-giving love of having children or maybe it's preventing them from even developing bonds or connections. Right. And the author of this article points out some of the great work by uh, Ramon uh, Gardini, one of the great spiritual figures of, uh, of the last century, pointing out that there are a couple of things that need to happen during adolescence in order to lead to this mature maturation of love. And, you know, the first is understanding one's identity. And you know, we've talked about this so much before is that especially with so much on the uh, LGBT ad- agenda and understanding one's identity by their uh, sexual orientation, their attractions is the temptation that one cannot truly understand their identity at a deeper level other than their attractions. And then secondly, to look at one's sexuality, a growth in sexuality where it becomes as an adolescent, you might, one might think it's all about pleasure and what can the other give to me rather than becoming gift rather and and living that in the truth of the the plan for sexuality and these are both parts of growing out of adolescence into adulthood which is being delayed or ignored altogether and we have to remember we mentioned this uh recently with dr philip chavez on the show when the catholic church is talking about developing in sexuality it's also actually talking about developing as male and female Mm -hmm. not just in the exchanging of sexual intimacy but in the development of our sex as woman as our sex as a man. Yeah, and I've heard it described too is that sometimes we will just generally say parenting or even adulting. We could say it in almost any aspect of life is that there, there's almost no such thing as parenting. There is being a father or being a mother. And because of some of this, so many of the social situations, you know, single mothers, single fathers who have to almost take on both roles, which is, you know, it's, it's not ideal, it's unfortunate. And, uh, but we've seen so many strong people uh, come you know, into that and through that. Yet, it's important for us to understand that you, you don't parent, you are a father or you are a mother. Mm-hmm. And the church has so much wisdom on maturing in love in order to, for, to make that happen. Well, and this is what the article really talks about as well, how you start in receiving love, that mm-hmm. love of a parent, that unconditional love. You you know continue to develop in that unconditional love into a brotherly love where you're sharing that love with someone else. But ultimately, it says that true maturation and love ultimately leads specifically to what you're saying, not parenthood, but fatherhood for men and motherhood for women. And We'll even dive in a little bit to that spiritual fatherhood and motherhood if you don't have biological children as well. Right, right. And for biological mothers and fathers, you must be 
spiritual mothers and fathers as well. And I think that is forgotten quite often. That's che- People are yeah. checking out of that side right. of things. Right, right. And obviously, a father and a mother will have their children who you know, will not listen to them you know, the same way that they'll listen to another spiritual father or mother. But it's still the, the role of the parents, again, to be the primary educators, not just in worldly things, but especially in the spiritual life, in life as church. You know, the domestic church where you know, the family first learns forgiveness, not just you know, how to give it, but how to receive it, because that can be more difficult than to give forgiveness sometimes. You know, learning to show mercy, learning to pray that begins in the home, and then it will have to continue outside of the home as one matures in love. I'm getting off track a little bit here because we're coming back to this theme of the parents as primary educators, but you mentioned a second ago about how sometimes, you know, the children won't listen to the parents. Well, that's where things such as youth groups, such as church communities, such as family members, actually inviting good role models into your home and surrounding your children is important, but you don't default to them. They are backup. They're your backup dancers who are modeling and showing that faith lived out. I know that's a little bit of a tangent here because I want to keep talking, Father Tim, if you can hit on some of those steps still of developing in in a mature adult way of loving. Right. And it it happens in friendships. It it happens in friendships where intimacy can be found, not always in a sexual way, but uh, for men to be able to find some kind of healthy intimacy with other men and women with other women within the context of friendship. And I think that's something that's sorely missing in the conversation of the LGBT issues in our culture today is that, you know, friendship is so overly sexualized that if I'm growing in some kind of friendly intimacy with another person, it must be sexualized. Well, and this is what we read in all of the testimonies of the men and women, especially the men who are experiencing same-sex attraction. They just wanted friendship. And sometimes even in their uh, journey of healing from past traumas and abuse, they discover that in their longing for same-sex sexual engagement with another person, they were actually just longing for that friendship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And which shows that maturing in love is not something we do by ourselves. It's something that happens within a a context of a number of different relationships, family relationships, uh, friendships mentorships it has to happen within a community and you know unfortunately there's we look at how men grow up how women grow up and where are the rites of passage that were hallmarks for some of the traditional cultures that we've looked at i was just for some reason watching that movie 300 which is a classic of what many would say is that toxic masculinity it's it's all about the battle it's but they got something right is that they had rites of passage brutal as they were portrayed obviously it's a comic book caricature of, a, of an ancient culture, but they would send their young boys into a life of battle and war as early as seven years old. Again, according to the comic book caricature of the culture, I don't know the Spartan history of that well, personally. But then by the time that they're teenagers, they're sent out into the wild by themselves and they either came back or they didn't. And if they came back, they could be Spartan men. I'm not saying we should send our young men out in the wilderness by themselves to kill a wolf and come back wearing its skin, but we need something that is sorely missing because, you know, you you can see it in the gang culture. Even they have rites of passage in the gang culture that we generally have forgotten or ignored so that men don't know when they become men if that ever happens. 
home, we forget that men are also very goal oriented and often we leave men floundering without a goal. And, you know, I look at St. John Paul the Great and some of the notes in this article talking about developing immature love. And he talks about in Love and Responsibility is Carol Votila, how, you know, it starts with understanding the sensual and sexual attitudes, essentially, and putting those in check. And so when you are beginning to care and develop for someone, you know, the sexual side can't just be acted upon. It has to be recognized, acknowledged, uh, but not dove into and same with the sensual side, the sentimentality. Also, we have, you know, second, he talks about how emotions and feelings have to be put into check. And then he talks about how in the end that will free us to an act of personal love. And we could argue that this act of personal love is a choosing and a giving and a taking on a responsibility of your vocation, either as spouse, you know, entering into parenthood, becoming a priest, a religious sister. Yeah. And another key element to Voitiva's understanding of the person maturing in love is friendship and intimacy. What kind of friendships are there? First, there's the friendship of utility. Maybe we work in the same business and we can offer each other something. That's a type of friendship, but it has its limits. Uh, then there's the friendship of pleasure. Is you know, I can offer you some kind of pleasure. You can offer me some kind of pleasure. When that pleasure is gone, when that utility is gone, what's left? The only thing that can be at the heart of true intimate friendship is a growth in virtue together and having a greater goal beyond the two people who are friendships. And so there, there's a necessary third. And we as Christians uh, believe Christ, believe God, the Holy Trinity, to be that necessary third in every relationship. That's where we talk about willing the good of the other, how that's at the heart of developing into a mature love. It's self-giving. This has been Trending with Timory. To book her to speak or learn more about her guest, visit radiotrending.com. That's radiotrending.com. You can listen to more of Trending via the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or the iHeartRadio app, where you can share your favorite episodes. 